John 14, and it's verse 1. And I'd like to read that to you now, and then we'll have a look at what it has to say to us. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Well, they didn't, but let's pray. Father, we ask you now, in this lovely service of worship and of ministry, of dedication, we just ask now, Lord, that your Holy Spirit might rest upon the speaker and hearers alike. We would like you to speak to us. We're not concerned what Gordon says. We're concerned what you say. So will you please speak to each one. Amen. 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 This is, I say, a very well-known portion of Scripture. I know it off by heart. Probably in the authorised version, but I know it off by heart. Because sadly, it's a portion that is read to be a comfort to those who are at a funeral service. But please, there's nothing wrong with that. But if you think that's just what it's for, I believe you're missing out on what this portion of Scripture has to speak about. It's that, but it's more. And that's what I'd like to do this morning, is to just walk through it and just share with you what it's saying, that it might be of help to you. We find that in the previous chapter, the disciples had received three pieces of bad news. That's why their hearts were troubled. Three pieces of bad news. The first piece of bad news was that one of them was going to betray Jesus. That's in chapter 13 and verse 21. That one of them was going to betray Jesus. Now, they were a very tightly knit group, the disciples. They'd walked together. They, I'm sure they'd played together. They'd eaten together. They'd been with Jesus for this period of time. I'm sure they were a very tightly knit group. And suddenly, John, who gives us a lot of information to conversations that took place at this time, running up to the crucifixion, he turns around and he says to them, listen, one of you is going to betray me. Now, that would have troubled their hearts. If in your situation, I was to say to you that someone in your family or someone at your work or one of your friends was going to betray you um, or your group, you'd think, well, that's, that would trouble you. Who is it? Who's the one? Obviously, we know it was Judas Iscariot and soon after he would leave the room to do what he had to do. But the word betrayal had been brought in, and I believe that troubled their hearts. Now, there's not many people maybe get through the whole of their lives and don't find that sometime they felt betrayed by someone. And so really, what follows on is not just for the comfort of the bereaved, although it is a comfort to the bereaved, I believe it's a comfort to those who may have experienced some betrayal in their experience, in their life. It can be very difficult. It can affect our hearts. In fact, it can trouble our hearts. Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. It can be upsetting when something like that happens. And Jesus comes into the group and he says, look, fellas, I've got to tell you now, one of you is going to betray me. Now, that in itself is enough to upset them, but they were to receive some other news from Jesus. Not only would one of them uh, betray him, but one of them would deny him. Chapter 13, and it's verse 38, where we know now know it was Peter. Peter would deny Jesus. When Jesus was arrested, 
Peter followed on, and we applaud him for that. But when in a courtyard he was questioned whether he was one of the disciples, he denied Jesus three times, as Jesus had prophesied he would, and he actually denied him with swear words, oaths, and cursing. And Peter was so upset about that. That's for another time, maybe. So one was going to betray. One was going to deny him. Okay. So don't worry about him. I'll keep going, all right? Um, one was going to betray him, which was Judas, and one was going to deny who was Peter. And in that group, they, they wondered, who is it? They looked around the room. Who is capable of denying Jesus? Which one of us would do it? And strangely enough, it was probably the one they thought would be the least to do it. Peter, who was the first to speak, maybe a little bit more extrovert than some of the others, and he would actually deny Jesus. And Jesus told him he would. He said, before the alarm clock goes off, which is the cockerel, no, you'll deny me three times. And even in that, there was redemption for Peter, that Jesus knew and Jesus still accepted him. He was in the room, even though Jesus knew he would deny him. Such was the grace of the Lord. So here we have this group with two pieces of information that would trouble them. One of you is going to deny, one of you is going to betray me. But there was a third piece of news that was going to come that was going to rock them even more. And we find that in verse 30, 33, pardon me. It says there, my children, I will be with you only a little longer. What a beautiful term. He's talking to a group of men and yet his father heart of God is coming up. My children, I, I will be with you only a little longer. Wow. Stop. What do you mean? You could just see, what do you mean, not a little while? We, you know, we've left the boats, the fishing boats. We've sold the family business. We, we're following you. We believe you're the Messiah. We're waiting for you to kick the Romans out. I just say, if you're here from Rome, that was nothing personal, you know, <laughs> in that way. But that was what they were expecting so often. He said, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now where I am going, you cannot come. Well, I think that was the most troubling piece of news. It's one thing knowing that one of them would deny. It was one thing knowing one of them would um, betray. But to think that Jesus would not be with them, and he was going somewhere they cannot go. Their hearts were troubled on those three levels. Maybe you have felt betrayed. Maybe you have felt denied. Maybe there's been a separation between someone you love and yourself and you find that your heart is troubled. Bereavement can do that to you. Bereavement can do that to you. When someone whom you love is no longer with you, is there a more troubling experience? I remember when my father died, he, my mother said, oh, I won't last a year. She lived about another 30 years, bless her. <laughs> you know, bless her. Anyway, that's another, that's another Bible study my mother another bible study um anyway you know separated how would she manage without my dad she managed she managed and we find ourselves here in that situation with the disciples do not let your heart be troubled and he acknowledges the fact that christians can have troubled hearts you know i've met people that and please there's no one here that says, if you've got troubles, then you must have sinned. May I tell you, if their friends, dump them. <laughs> because they are absolutely, couldn't be further off the mark. The most godly people I've ever met have suffered. 
It's got nothing to do with that. We find ourselves betrayed and we find ourselves people deny. We find ourselves in emotions. We find ourselves with our hearts troubled. And please don't assume there's something wrong with you. There might be, but don't assume it. It might be you're not walking with God and your heart's troubled because of that. Maybe because of sin or resentment or bitterness or unforgiveness. And you find your heart troubled. So within this room, Jesus has said to them, look, there's three things he told them and each one of them caused their hearts to be troubled. Then we come to the text. Then Jesus comes in with the antidote to it. What's the antidote to a troubled heart? First of all, he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Do you know, I love this because he now asked them to take responsibility for their heart. You have a, a great pastoral team here and they will do all they can to support you but they cannot take responsibility for your heart. They cannot forgive people on your behalf. They cannot pray on you instead of you. Well, they're not a priesthood. They're pastors and teachers and evangelists. They're not a priesthood that can pray for you. You pray for yourself. They can pray for you, but they can't pray on your behalf. And he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. We have to take responsibility. You say, oh, Gordon, you don't know what people did to me. No, you've missed the point. The point is you can do something about what they did to you. And that is, first of all, to forgive them. Because you're not going anywhere till you've done that. Anywhere till you've done that. I remember when I um, was married, my wife Kay may be watching one of the services and no doubt will be letting me know how I got on when I get home. All I ask her is to be kind, you know. I can remember when we were having our first child, Kay was expecting Helen, and um, I felt it was right to get some insurance. We had a very small salary, um, and then, oh, a very good, well, I don't have a salary now, but in that sense, it was, and um, I thought, well, I have to get some insurance. If something happens to me, uh, Kay's got a baby now to look after. So I went to a doctor. Now, I'm going to tell this story as I remember it. Now, when you're my age, you put a little disclaimer in there, <laughs> all right? This is how I remember it. And if the doctor's present, I will speak with you afterwards. If he is present, he's going to be about 300 years old, but never mind. Anyway, I wanted to get some insurance, so if anything happened to me, Kay would have enough money for the honeymoon. Um, you missed that one, didn't you? Okay. Um, and um, I went to this doctor, he wasn't my GP. And um, I don't remember him looking up. He just was writing. And looked. I mean, I could have been a woman and he wouldn't have known. <laughs> he never looked up. And he went, name. He was obviously filling a form in for the insurance company. Mother, father. I said, father deceased. Uh, when did he die? And he went, I said, uh, well, he was 52 when he died. Smoked from the age of 14. There we are and uh, never saw his grandchildren. Anyway, so he's writing, and he just went, uh. I thought, what does uh mean? I said, what does, I mean, I thought, I'm paying 50 pounds for this, I want to know what uh means. <laughs> so he went, and this is his father, he said, you'll die within a few months of your father. You see, and his head's down. And I'm going, well, 50 quid, 
I thought, I need more information for 50 pounds. He said, what do you mean? He'd hooked me. Brilliant doctor. Put down his pen, looked up at me. He said, tell me about your father. So I said, well, he smoked from four. He was uh, from Ireland and uh, a poor background in Ireland. And they all, started, they all started smoking at 14. We lived out the frying pan. You know, we were, he was a grocer, so sausages and bread. Well, you know, we, we did it all wrong. Did it all wrong. But the smoking was the big thing. And um, he, I told him about my dad. Did he have any exercise, a bit of gardening? And he went through it and he said, listen, he said, if you have the same lifestyle as your father, you'll die at the same age as your father. With the genetics and the rest of it, he said, don't be in no doubt. He said, now tell me about you. Do you smoke? I said, no. Do you drink? I said, no. I went, tea and tea. Did you, <laughs> did you get that? <laughs> tea. Stronger rather than weaker. Semi-skilled milk, no sugar. So somebody should be writing that down, but never mind. Um, so I do drink, but no alcohol. And um, I actually gave up drinking when I got to 18, which was a very strange thing. Um, so he went through it, and obviously uh, my lifestyle was different. I wasn't so heavy then as I am now. I put this weight on just to illustrate for the sermon. <laughs> it will be... Next time you see me, I will look different. I didn't say that in the first service. That's not the same. This, is, this is live. Okay? And, do you know, I walked out of that surgery realising that I have to take responsibility for my heart. My physical heart. Now, I am heavy at the moment. I spent the last 25 years in a car. So, um, that's my excuse, but it's not the real excuse. You see, physically, you have to take responsibility for your heart. You have to watch your diet, you have to do some exercise, etc., etc. And GPs will monitor it and all the rest of it. That's fine. And, you know, Jesus did the same thing. He said, do not let your hearts be troubled. He said, look, you've got to look... Well, the doctor said to me, look after your heart, Gordon. You know, exercise, etc., etc. OK. And uh, all I can say to the doctor now is I haven't started smoking. <laughs> but, you know... Um, but Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. The danger for someone like me is, of course, wait, and if you smoke, and etc., you know it, you've seen it, you've heard the adverts on the telly for the dangers of all of this. But you know, you have to take responsibility for your own heart. We can't do it. No matter how good the pastoral team is here, we cannot forgive people for you. And you know, our attitudes can be as destructive to our spiritual hearts as certain lifestyles can be destructive to our physical hearts. So he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Please, will you check your heart out when you go home? Now, I'm at an age now when the, every, so often I will be called into the GP and they'll check my blood pressure, they'll check, you know, or whatever it is, you know, and it's, it's nice to have a sit down, actually. You know, you go and they check. Why don't you check your spiritual heart? What do you mean? So, well, have you got any unforgiveness there? One of the tests I have for my spiritual condition is how quickly I forgive people. Now, I will forgive them eventually, especially as I see the second coming of Jesus coming nearer. <laughs> but, you know, how quickly can you forgive? Well, it takes me about a year. So you're going to stand still in your spiritual life for a year? Well, it takes me three months. Well, I do it when they come and they apologise. 
Good job Jesus didn't take that attitude with you when you apologized. He died for you before you apologized. If he waited for you to apologize, he'd still be waiting. Okay. The great thing about when people clap like this, you get a drink. So please, will you check your heart out? Say, well, there's a bit of resentment there. You know, someone did something to me 50 years ago and I've not forgiven them all. Listen, I, I, I don't have words from God in the sense that some men do. Let me just give you something. Get over it. Get over it. It ain't worth your spiritual life to hold on to anything that will. Don't allow anything or anyone to ruin your future in God. Why should they? Why should they? When you have a God that will forgive you, a God that will renew you, get to energize and get energized. You know, this is what it's about. Thank you. Okay. Okay. So he says to them, do not let your hearts be troubled. Now, the word troubled, um, I understand, can be translated agitated. Now, I said this in the first service, and no one knew what I was talking about. I have never felt so alone, <laughs> apart from at football, <laughs> you know. Um, there used to be a washing machine called an agitator. Does, has anybody ever heard of that? Do you know what? Do you go to the river with your clothes or what? <laughs> well, it, it was like a tub. You la ladies, this is very important. It was like a tub and there was a big thing and it went backwards and forwards like that. Yes. My goodness, God sent you here. God oh, help me. We'd go like that. And I think it was called an agitator. And that's, that's what Jesus is saying. Something has come into your heart that's churning it up. Churning it up. Now, the agitator, it got the water to mix with the soap and the soap into your clothes, etc., and all the rest of it. And then the spinner used to be next to it. Uh, and that way. So that's it. You can see them in museums now, I believe. <laughs> or at my house. <laughs> They're still there. And that's what he's saying. Fellas, you've had three pieces of information. One of you is going to deny. One of you is going to betray and I'm going, and you can't come with me. Where I'm going, you can't come. That must have upset them so much. And it churned them up, it stirred them up. Well, we've got an antidote for that. There's an antidote for that. We read on, what does he say? He said, trust in God. Now that was easy, really, for the Jewish men that were in the room. They were all spiritual men, they'd all been brought up in the Jewish faith. They could trust in God. They knew about Moses and taking the people out of Israel. Joshua taking them into the promised land. They knew about the Daniels and the lions not eating him. You know, they knew. I think that within their thoughts, the thought of trusting God would not have been a foreign concept. You go out in the street out there, stop the first person and said, if you trust in God, they'll go, what? Do you want me to take you back to the ward? They really would. They wouldn't understand what it is. But this group would understand. So Jesus says, trust in God. And they all went, amen, brother. Amen. We believe in that. And then he comes in with this burst of truth that is phenomenal. He turns around and says, trust in God. Trust also in me. 
So he's saying to them, look, you've trusted God. Israel's trusted God's covenants and God's promises down the years. Here we are looking for the Messiah. You're believing I'm the Messiah. Look, you've trusted God. Now trust also in me. Notice Jesus doesn't say, stop trusting God and trust me. Trust also in me. Because when you trust God and you trust Jesus, you're trusting God and Jesus. It's, they are three in one with the Trinity. Or the Godhead is probably a better word to use. Not the so confusion here. The Godhead. And so he's coming and he's saying, look, fellas, you're going through some choppy water. It's going to be difficult. Betrayal. Peter, you're going to do it. Judas, you're going to do it. Fellas, I've got to go to the cross. I've got to go into the grave. I'm going to be separated. You can't come with me there. But he says, what you've got to do is trust me. And when you feel alone and you feel that things have maybe gone wrong and the betrayals and the denials and all those things have taken place and you stand there thinking, what's happening? My heart is so agitated. I'm so troubled. What's the answer? I'll tell you now, there's not seven steps and, you know, let me tell you what it is. Trust also in me. And the reason he does that, and I can say that to you is this, he went to the cross to die for you why can you not put your trust in him? What more, what more must he do? What more must he do than to die and rise again and live for eternity? And so he comes very simply and says, trust also in me. And then he moves on and says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me. This separation is temporary. This feeling, this emotions you're feeling that's agitated, troubled you, it's not eternal. It's only for a period. Take you to be, that you may also be where I am. So he came into this situation acknowledging that Christians can have troubled hearts, encouraging Christians to put their trust in him, and also giving them the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is, whatever happens in this life, we have an eternity with Christ in heaven. And that puts things into perspective. It doesn't take the pain away. It doesn't mean the bereavement isn't real. It doesn't mean the denial didn't, or the betrayal didn't cut you deep. It does not do that. He acknowledges the troubled heart, but he comes and says to you, listen, I'm with you, trust me, because we've got an eternity ahead of us. And at that time, you go to the doctor's surgery for the results. Those times when you wonder what is happening in your life. Trust him and know that he's gone to prepare a place for you. You're not forgotten. You're not forgotten. He hasn't washed his hands of you. For a short while, I'll be gone. You can't come there. They wouldn't have wanted to go there, let me tell you. He comes and says that to them. That he says to them that you may, sorry, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. There's the sense of the immediate. He will come back from the grave on Easter Sunday he rose from the grave and came back to them but there's an aspect obviously that he's gone to prepare a place for us and at this moment Jesus Christ is preparing a place now what is it like I don't know 
I don't know what heaven's going to be like, but I know that Queen's Park Rangers will win the European Cup. <laughs> I just know that. I've been told that. I believe that. Well, that, that might be heaven for me, but it might not be heaven for you. I don't know exactly, because it's not entered into the heart of man. The things God has prepared for them that love him. And he loves you. It's never, do you know on your best day, on your best day, you can't think of what he's got prepared for us. But till then, we've got to trust him. Till then, we've got to trust God and trust him also. Till then, we've got to quieten our hearts with the understanding, I'm, I'm quoting an old chorus here, that God is still on his throne and he will remember his own. Do you know God never gets off his throne for anyone? Whatever might come, he remains on the throne. The only thing he's ever done is move the cross to let Jesus sit next to him. He said, come on, there's room for two of us. And he's our saviour and he's our God. So may I say very pastorally, if you find yourself troubled, maybe not with betrayal or denial or separation, you find yourself troubled, may I very gently say to you, then please put your trust in God. You trust the garage to fix your brakes. Are you a little nervous the first time? No, I'm not. But you trust the, doc you trust the doctor. The doctor gives you an anaesthetic. You trust him. Who knows what he might do <laughs> while you're under the anaesthetic? <laughs> he could swap your legs over. <laughs> you don't, but you trust him. He says, we had an anaesthetist in the Derby church. He said to me, if ever you need an operation, I want to be your anaesthetist. I said, that, his name was um, Moses, actually. His name was Moses. I said, oh, that's kind. Why is that? He said, well, you've put me to sleep so often. <laughs> he was never an elder. Never an elder. Friends, look at the people you trust. You trust doctors, and rightly so. You trust car mechanics. We trust air pilots. One of the sons of one of our ministers is now a pilot. I've got to say that I was nervous when I heard that. <laughs> I won't say who he is, but I would dodge certain airlines. <laughs> if you can trust a doctor, and rightly so, and an airline pilot, and I don't know how many others have been silly now, can't we trust God? Can't we trust the resurrection and the life? Can't we trust the Alpha and the Omega? Can't we trust him who was dead and now is alive forevermore? It's what it's about. It's what it's about. Now, in this room, that sounds easy. With the clap and the affirmation of what Scripture says, of course. I know it's a little different because you're going to go home to that betrayal or that illness or that loneliness. You've got to go home to it. And I don't want to be flippant in any way, but may I just say, please, just remember, trust him. Yeah. Trust him. He is trustworthy. Am I trustworthy? I will always do my best. But I'll tell you, God, I can let you down. I can fail you. I, I, please, not deliberately, but I'm just human. But he will never let you down.